it is Zoe and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast, the show that is going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more self-compassion, confidence and connection. You are going to love this week's episode. It is with Paul Morgan Bentley, author of The Equal Parent. So Paul and his husband, Robin, welcomed a baby via surrogate three years ago. And lying awake one night after struggling to put his newborn son back to sleep, Paul found himself desperately scrolling for parenting advice for new fathers. But soon Paul picked up on a really clear recurring narrative that compared to mums, dads were useless. He said he got fed up with all the praise he was getting for being at doctor's appointments, playgroups, health visit appointments, which of course is all expected of mothers. So as a journalist in his day job, Paul dived into the research to understand why. Why is it still so unequal when it comes to caregiving for our children? Is it biology? Is it society? Or is it something else? We answer all that and so much more in this episode. I have a feeling you are going to love it. I personally found it really illuminating. And the more and more work that I do supporting and empowering mothers, the more I realize there is only so much we can do alone. We need roles to change. We need gender expectations to change. We need family setups to change. And I feel like this episode is such a powerful example of why that is. So please do share it with your partner if you have one. Leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of people that we can reach together. Here it is. Paul, welcome. I'm really excited for this chat. I loved your book and your perspective and all the research that you've done. Can't wait to dive into it. What drove you to dive into this quite prickly sort of subject around equal parenting? Thank you so much for having me on. That is a good question. Why would I be mad enough to write about this? It was just our experiences. So I am a gay dad through surrogacy. My husband, Robin, and I have a son, Solly, who's now three. And before we became parents, we assumed that the fact that we were gay dads would have an impact and maybe people would treat us slightly differently, kind of worst case scenario, be homophobic, that kind of thing. But actually, in reality, we had a really, really good experience. You know, the last three years, you sometimes get funny comments about that. But, you know, generally, everyone's just really busy and getting on with their lives and can care less what other families look like. You care about your own family. However, the really formative experience that we did have and the thing that really surprised us was just how little was expected of dads, much more generally, kind of irrelevant of the fact that we were gay dads. Just, you know, I'd take Solly to a vaccine appointment while I was on parental leave and would get a huge amount of praise for it. You know, nurses would say, oh, it's amazing to see a dad doing this. Oh, we never usually see dads. You know, things like that kept happening. We'd get the kind of calls from you know, health visitors and they'd say, can I speak to mum? And you'd say, oh, it's actually a two-dad family. We had them through surrogacy. And they'd say, oh, oh, they'd say, oh, we need to have a mum listed. So we'd say, oh, can you just list both of us? And they'd say, oh, no, we never list two parents. We only ever usually list a mum. And that's what happens in the NHS. I mean, I should explain on audio that Zoe's looking quite shocked. But in the NHS, it's really old-fashioned. And of course, mothers are at the centre of most families. And of course, mothers should be called. 
But actually, we kind of exist at the moment in a society that very much says that it cares about equality at work and women should be equal at work and should be working as hard, earning as much as men, etc. But that can't happen after you have kids if absolutely all the responsibility or primarily the responsibility is always on women. They should not be shocked when men turn up for their own kids' medical appointments. That should be expected. And because of that, I wanted to answer those questions. I wanted to find out why they were still so shocked. We know that take-up of shared parental leave is terrible in this country. That's been written about a lot. But why is that? Also, scientifically, is it the case that fundamentally, you know, women carry babies and give birth and everyone talks about the mother's instinct? Is it that men just can't do this? as well. Kind of spoiler alert, they absolutely can. But I wanted to kind of try and find all those questions and write about it. And the reason I was looking so shocked is because as someone who is in a traditional setup and did pick up, you know, not all, but the majority of those health visit phone calls, those vaccination trips, I don't see that perspective that you've got. And I've heard it a lot on the podcast, but just hearing it again and again and again is just so affirming. And I love what you're saying around we cannot have equality in the workplace until we have equality at home. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. That's why burnout in mothers is highest than it's ever been since they started the records. And it happens at every point. If you think about it rationally, once the baby's kind of out of the body, once the baby's alive the responsibility can be shared and should be shared. Obviously, there's some barriers there. If a mother is breastfeeding, she's going to be doing more of the care initially. She's much more likely to be off for more of the first year. But actually, those things don't last very long in a child's lifetime. But it establishes patterns, particularly around responsibility. And lots of parents talk about the mental load, particularly mothers. And it's this kind of invisible burden that you might be doing the same amount of dishes, but if you're walking around work all day, totally worried about everything at home, leaving lists for your partner or packing the bag, even if you're not the one doing the nursery run, you're doing more and it's not fair. But that happens without mothers even realizing it or intending it. Because if you're constantly getting the calls, it's parental leave and then you send your kids to nursery, let's say, but the conversation is always whether the woman's salary can pick up the costs of the nursery. It's always like, well, I couldn't go back to work. My salary didn't cover it. Women say that. But there's another person usually there, the father. Why is no one looking at his income? Why is it never the expectation that it's a family income and let's look at what's best for us long term? And so I think these things kind of spiral. And then why are women carrying the mental load? Because of all these things that have happened over the years since having children. I want to dive into that because I found that absolutely fascinating. When you talk about this, one of your first aha moments was this phrase that you kept seeing, which was to the fathers, go home and get some rest. You talked about the importance of those early weeks and skin to skin. And tell us all about that, because I think that's absolutely fundamental. How we are in those early days often plays out how we are in years to come. Yes, it sets those patterns. And This is what the scientists say, that actually when you have a baby, this idea that women know what they're doing more than men is nonsense usually. And actually, no one knows what they're doing. But the first time you get them to sleep, then you gain a bit of confidence and then you get them to sleep again. And then six months later, the dad is saying, well, I can't put the baby to sleep and only the mum can. Well, this isn't some magical power. She's gone through the tough times to become proficient. And actually, he has to do the same things. But I think one thing that happens as a gay couple is we don't have years and years of societal expectations on us in terms of what we should do and how we should split responsibilities. So we have been able to just be really practical and really kind of fair about things. If one of us goes off to work, we're not thinking, oh, people think we're a terrible mother. 
We don't have that weight of burden about what it means to be a father in the same way. The opposite happens. You're just praised all the time for doing the basics. But to go back to that kind of first night, so because we're kind of freed of those societal expectations, we could just be really practical. We were both there in hospital. There was never a question in our minds that one of us would go home and get some rest. And that's what's usually said to dads. But it's mad when you think about it. Why do you need rest as the dad? Actually, that's the moment the baby's out of her body. It's not primarily her responsibility anymore. Step up now. Let's imagine a world in which suddenly overnight men are giving birth. I would not believe for a second if someone said women would then be told to go home and get some rest. They'd be there. They'd be expected to change the nappies. The dad who'd just given birth would be lying there in hospital recovering. And you know, you think about any other situation. If a woman had been in a car accident and lost loads of blood, the hospital would expect the dad to be there. There'd be an expectation of the the partner or someone to be there looking after her as well as the staff. And as part of the book, I did freedom of information requests to hospitals in the UK because there's no national policy when it comes to how to treat dads or any partner after birth. And the majority of hospitals do tell dads to go home and they're only allowed to be there in visiting hours. In some cases, one hospital was as little as one hour per 24 hours that they were allowed to be there. Robin and I found it amazing because having not given birth, and I should explain the situation, we were very lucky in that Rachel lives in the north of England in quite a quiet area, and there were probably only two women giving birth that night. We had private rooms that we didn't have to pay for, one for us, one for her. We could be with each other throughout, and we just spent the whole time together. She slept for a while after giving birth. She could have come and joined us, but she wanted to just sleep for a while. And she joined us in the morning and we all left together. We were around throughout, but we kept thinking about our friend, our male friends, and thinking they just went home. Also, it's tough for them. Well, you just go home and your partner's just lost loads of blood, given birth or had emergency surgery, and you just go home and go to sleep. You know, we were doing that thing that loads of people must do, you know, staring at him, at Solly, amazed and kind of terrified he was going to die, you know, like touching his chest to check who's breathing. felt amazing to us that they'd missed out on that, but also that the mother has just given birth or had surgery, and then it's all down to her. We had this one moment where Solly kind of, it's a bit gross, but kind of puked brown stuff, and we panicked, and I kind of ran to get a midwife, and it was fine. Apparently, that's quite normal, and just some kind of gunk he'd swallowed on the way out. But we were thinking, what women are usually just left it, they couldn't run out. They're just panicking on their own and trying to establish breastfeeding at the same time. And it's deeply unfair. And I think as a gay couple, you can kind of get that perspective because people have to rethink it because you're a new type of family. Whereas everyone else, I think, usually just goes with what's expected, the normal narrative. And I'm deeply grateful for your perspective because just when you said we are freed from those conditions, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, that would just be, I cannot imagine how different the majority of mothers' lives would be if we were also freed from those expectations. Tell us what you learned about those early days and skin to skin and the brain changes, because you're absolutely right. We've had Chelsea Connoboy on the podcast who completely debunked that motherhood instinct. It's not instinct at all. It's proximity to the baby, which helps you to create those brain changes. So tell us about what you learned about that, because I think that is so important to break down because a lot of people still think, no, it has to be the mother. And it's absolutely not the case, is it? And I think women are rightly terrified that if I do this wrong, if I share this, if as the mother, I'm not there all the time, am I going to 
damage the baby. I don't think it's like a selfish thing. You've got the weight of huge responsibility and you don't want to screw it up. But there's two really key bits of science now that I think are so, so important. And that it's important to know this stuff, to reassure yourself that if you're sharing childcare, you're not doing damage to your baby. It's not that if you're not there, no one's going to respond to your baby and that kind of stuff. The first key bit of science is scientists for decades have been measuring new parents' blood and hormone levels and things like that. And the kind of key hormone with bonding is oxytocin. People call it the kind of love hormone. And it's known that in pregnancy and childbirth, it usually goes up massively. There is a biological aspect that it kind of primes a mother, hopefully to bond. And that happens naturally. There was always an expectation that dad, because they hadn't gone through pregnancy and childbirth, would not have the same levels of oxytocin. However, scientists have now measured those levels in dads. And what they found is that if you're a totally absent dad, your hormones don't change. However, if you're there, hands-on, changing nappies, baby to your chest, feeding baby, whatever, all those things, if you're around, if you're not going home to get some rest, if you're not back at work all the time, if you're literally there doing stuff with your baby, not only does your oxytocin levels rise, they rise as high as new mothers and actually really quickly. So this idea that women bond more intensely with babies than men has just been disproven now. As long as dads are there doing it, the bonds are as intense. The second bit that's really, really important is having done that, scientists had this question about why mothers tend to respond to babies quicker. So if you're lying in bed, it's kind of a cliche, but I think loads of mothers say this and fathers that the dad just sleeps deeper, but the mum wakes up. Like why do mums wake first when a baby cries at night? And so they scanned new parents' brains and they found that part of the brain, the amygdala, there's two of them at the back of the brain and they're about responding to panic and anxiety and fight or flight and that kind of stuff. And actually in new mothers, the amygdala tend to be four times the size of new dads. So that seemed to answer the question about why they were responding quicker. Women do seem to naturally have this enlarged amygdala. But then more recently, they've scanned couples like me and Robin. So gay dads through surrogacy who have had babies from the first day of their life. And whoever was the primary carer, their amygdala was also four times the size, exactly the same as new mothers. So what that shows is that actually it's not to do with your sex. It's to do with responsibility. And if you are lying in bed and next to you is your wife or your partner who's a new mother, because of societal expectations, probably because of the last nine months, you're lying there and you feel responsibility, but you don't feel that kind of sickening feeling like when you have an exam the next day and no one else is going to do this but me or you've got a presentation the next day and you feel sick about it new mothers get that much more than new dads i think because new dads are lying there next to the new mum and they see that somewhere subconsciously they're a help they're doing a lot but it's not my primary responsibility lo and behold when there's no woman there the men get up and actually if new mums went away for work for a couple of weeks the dad would wake up because if no one else is going to do it your amygdala enlarges. And so what it shows is that actually men's brains can change just like new mothers. And you literally saw this in your own bed, right? Because when you took shared parental leave and you were the primary carer, Robin would sleep through and you would be up. And then you thought to yourself, I wonder if this changes when you then switched over, you went back, Robin took leave and it happened, right? You would sleep more deeply and he would be getting up. So it's like you are a perfect case study to prove what you're talking about. 
It sounds too perfect, but it is 100% true. We used to argue about it when Solly was a few months old and I took the first period of parental leave. I was primarily looking after him. Robin was also doing a lot, but he was at work as well. And I was waking up first and I was furious with Robin because I couldn't understand why he wasn't waking up. I couldn't understand why I... You know, I was like having an existential crisis. I was like, if I turned into a mother, what's happened? Why am I the cliche kind of mother waking up first while he's sleeping like all dads? And then we switched parental leave and Robin got back to bed. It must have been the first night or one of the first nights and just said he was screaming. You just slept through it. And I didn't believe him. And I was just like, that's not true. I always wake up first. And that is what happened. And it's actually interesting. Now Solly's three. Robin still wakes up first. And I'm not sure why that's the case. I'm so happy to hear you say that you had that feeling of resentment because that is such a universal experience for a mother. Like I remember I've never experienced rage like it when my husband Guy was just sleeping soundly next to me and I'm trying to get the latch right at 3am and I'm so tired and I've never experienced rage like that. It's so interesting to hear you say it. We obviously didn't have the experience of breastfeeding, which is obviously amazing in so many ways, but also does, we have to be honest about it, creates other problems because it does make it harder for a partner to share things. And I'm not brave enough to get into the breast versus bottle debate. But you know what? Again, we were freed from it. We couldn't breastfeed, so we had to share the bottle feeds and it was great. And we found it hugely beneficial and it meant we could split things. It meant right from the beginning, we were both getting pretty decent stretches of sleep because I would do a 7pm feed and then go to sleep when Solly went to sleep and then sleep through while Robin did the 11pm feed and then I'd wake up at three. So I'd get like a good stretch either side of that. And actually through writing the book, I did want to ask some other people if they had managed to share it a bit more during breastfeeding. And they said really interesting things actually about you know, so much is the mental load and so much of feeding a baby is not just the feeding, it's the burping, it's the changing, it's the settling back to sleep. Sterilizing. Sterilizing if you're doing bottles, all of that. So even when a mum is breastfeeding, there are loads of things that dads can do. There's no reason that just because you're breastfeeding, that means you should also be burping and settling and everything else. Because if you're doing all those things, then you know, it's such a huge burden. And then the other thing is this kind of cliche that the dad has to be rested and sleep in the spare room because he's got an important day of work tomorrow. Because we were both freed from that and we both did both. If we had another child, we would never do that. We didn't do it this time. And why is a day of accountancy work more important than a day looking after a new baby? It's not harder. Now we joke that the days we're in the office are the easiest days. Yes, everyone says that, except for uninvolved fathers, who, of course, in my experience, ham up the stress of their of their day-to-day job. It's just not harder. You've got a commute. You can chill out on the commute. Like, you don't get to chill out as a new parent or new mother or a new dad who's there on leave looking after a baby. You don't. Well, I had someone on the podcast called Dr. Rick Hansen. He did a study or, or referenced a study in his first book, which was 20 years ago, amazingly. It shows that the cortisol levels, which of course is a stress hormone, is higher in the stay-at-home parent than the parent going out to work. I mean, it it proves it. At the centre of this is we don't see childcare as work. We see it as like leisure time. You come back to work after leave. Like a fun side hobby or just unimportant. Absolutely. And people say, how's your time off? And yes, there are occasional coffees with friends. And yes, you go to a baby class and you do get those moments. But 
it's so stressful. I don't find that surprising at all that cortisol levels are higher in parents who are at home. Of course they are. It's way more stressful. The responsibility is so much higher. Why as a society do you think, or how do you think we got here to the point where raising the next generation is essentially seen as unimportant? I'm not sure I can answer how we got here, but I definitely think it's completely unfair. And at the centre of it is that we don't see it as work. And it is work. And, you know, if you look at the rates of pay for statutory parental leave, you know, they're half of minimum wage. And that's in a country like the UK where we have it. In, you know, the US, they don't even have it. What does that say about how we value that? It's very clear that it's not seen as work. It's seen as kind of leisure or something where you need a bit of a help. But it's not. It's work. After a long weekend, new parents feel it doesn't stop when your child is not drinking milk anymore or out of nappies. Like the responsibility weighs on you. We kind of joke that we have the Sunday night feelings, the opposite now. I should caveat it with the fact that we absolutely love Solly a lot and we love spending time with him. But he's at nursery and we can just focus on work. That is a blessing. You know, that feels like time off now. So why don't we value it? There's so much sexism involved in that and kind of societal rules and laws being established by men in power who are not doing that work. So when you're not doing that work, it's really easy to think it's all trips to the coffee shop and that idea of sleep when the baby sleeps. You can't say that if you've actually done it because it doesn't work like that. And I think it's just societal rules and laws are established by people who haven't actually done it. And the more women we have in power and the more men that share this, the more people will realise that it is work and it's so hard and it should be totally rethought. Do you think the pandemic changed views at all? Yes. I think lots of men couldn't be blind to that anymore. And I think that what we're seeing with kind of flexible working now and the expectation that men are doing, studies have already shown that dads are doing much more domestically. Huge caveat is that it's still nowhere near enough. The studies still show inequality. It's not like we should celebrate yet. But the pandemic has sped that change along, which is brilliant. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. Before we get back to the podcast, I just want to tell you about another brilliant podcast that I've been listening to that I think every single one of us could benefit from. It's called Therapy Works and it's hosted by best-selling author and psychotherapist and my friend, Julia Samuel. Julia invites us into her therapy room where she speaks to either a known or an unknown guest about a particular challenge they're facing. So topics range from the difficulties of a divorce, a life-changing illness, to the struggles of motherhood, which was my episode when I was lucky enough to be a guest. Julia provides her guests with valuable advice 
and you will find that each episode resonates regardless of the topic. I know that I found that every single episode that I listen to of Therapy Works, I take something from. And what's even more special is at the end of every episode, Julia is joined by her two psychotherapist daughters where they reflect on the therapy session and share their own insights, which is really my favorite bit. I absolutely love that bit at the end. So just search Therapy Works now, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. Back to our episode. Something that I just really am curious to dive into with you is why is it, do you think, that so many fathers just feel this resistance, I don't know if that's the right word, to really diving in with both feet to sharing the responsibility? I think about this all the time. I think about, is it conditioning? Is it that they're just not conditioned because of what we've had down the generations? Is it because they want to avoid the responsibility and the messiness and how hard it is and how some days eye-wateringly boring it is? Is it because there's no ego in it? There's no achievement or award or in a day where you've kept a child, you know, a baby or a child alive and happy. I think about this non-stop. I cannot wait to hear what your insights are. I think it's really complex. I think for most dads, certainly involved dads and the type of dads that kind of I know and hang around with, I think they are not chilling with their feet up a lot of the time. I think they are stressed and they do feel like they're doing a lot. And, you know, I think it is quite different to a previous generation of man who was just kind of off on business trips all the time and not getting involved. I think a lot has changed and we should acknowledge that. My dad's generation of men weren't changing nappies. Now, if a man at a dinner party said, I refuse to change nappies, they'd be chucked out. So there have been some changes but I think it's really complex. I do think what happens is because there's all this expectation about this special world that mothers have, and obviously mothers are really special. I don't want to undermine that, but dads also can be. And because there's so much that happens with that, and because mums then take off usually the year of parental leave and the dads only take two weeks, then they get better at putting the baby to sleep. The baby wants them more. And then also what happens, and I, you know, I don't want to blame women, this is totally natural that this happens. And I think I did this as well as the one that went first, is you can kind of gatekeep a bit. And I would kind of say to my husband, and I didn't have all that baggage as a new mother, but I still did it because you've done it for six months primarily, you've had responsibility. So then when they are burping the baby and you're just like, oh, why are you doing it like that? Or oh, you're taking him out. Just make sure you've got this in the bag. And before you know it, you're packing the bag and or you're leaving a list. And actually something that I really learned in writing the book is how important it is that you don't write those lists. And that when you're going to work or you're going up or whatever you're doing, don't be that parent who is checking their phone to make sure your partner's got them to sleep. They will not die. He might do it differently to you, but he'll be fine. It really comes down to your relationship with each other as a couple. Do you trust each other? And do you trust them even though they're doing it differently to you? And I have found it really freeing. I think partly through writing the book, I've done this more and more, is that I don't pack the bag. I used to do that, even though I'm not a woman, you know, because I did it more at the beginning. And I don't. And lo and behold, they're fine. It increases their bond and it increases their sense of responsibility. And partners need the space to learn to do things in their own way as well. But then also there's the huge issue of masculinity. And what it means to be a man and the idea that if you turn around to work and say, I need to leave at 4 p.m. today to pick up my kid from nursery, that as a woman that is like, oh, well, we expect that of women, the positive and negative that comes with that, 
But as men, it's like, what? You're going at four? And often in workplaces, the people right at the top are men who didn't do that. So they kind of see it as you're taking time off. Yes. I read this incredible study the other day. I can't remember the exact statistics, but it's something like the proportion of senior politicians and senior CEOs, male, who have non-working female partners is astronomical. It's in its 90%. I can't remember the exact number, but I was like, there you go, because they don't get it. There's someone at home and the working week was never designed. It was designed to have someone at home taking care of everything else. That's how it was designed. It's completely broken, I think. But we can't survive on one salary anymore. The number of couples that can survive on one salary anymore, it doesn't work like that. Just 30 years ago, that was possible and you'd paid off your mortgage by the time you were 45, even though you only have one salary and someone could be at home. And that wasn't better because that was bad for women who wanted to progress at work and there wasn't equality in the workplace. But I do have a bit of a theory that older men at work in senior positions, that they look across the room and they probably think to themselves, there's no sexism here. Look at all these women doing brilliantly. But I think there is this inherent assumption they don't even think about, which is that everyone has a wife at home as well, because that's how they did it. And no expectation that, let's say there was a married couple there with a kid or something, and they're both there. They both have wives. You know, there's no understanding that everyone at work now is just trying to balance this stuff constantly. If you were in charge of workplace policy, what was some of the first changes you'd make? I think I would speak to dad. In workplaces, a lot of these conversations so far have been focused on mothers and making mothers feel better when they come back to work. And that needs to continue. Like we haven't got there yet, but very little talks to dads. But actually as a workplace, being really vocal that new dads at work here are our policies. They're the same as new mums. If you need to leave work early because you're picking up your kid from childcare, that's totally fine. You don't need to even ask permission. You can do it. If you've got anything extra, make it up in other hours. You still have to work these hours, but if you want to be more flexible about it, that's fine. I think too much now is about being a bit too gender neutral about everything. And what happens there is that dads don't think this stuff applies to them. And actually you have to speak to dads. Workplaces have so many events for mothers and helping mothers, and that's great. But get dads in a room. Like, dads are never in those rooms. And, you know, I've talked to loads of people about it and how it continues. And year four meeting with teachers about the new curriculum or whatever, and it's a room full of women still, even though those women are probably all working. There are studies that show that when the NHS after births write letters addressed to the mum and the dad and say, right, you've got this appointment coming up, the dads are much more likely to come than if it's just addressed to the mum. Because they kind of just think, obviously, I don't need to be there. So I think we need to invite dads to these things. We need to really tell them. Tell them that they can take shared parental leave and it won't be held against them. As well as telling mums that these are the things we have in place to make it better for you when you come back to work. Because what the studies show is when you look at the gender pay gap and all these kind of measures of gender inequality, that we're getting much better before we have kids. And then as soon as people have kids, it just like falls off a cliff. It's not even a gender pay gap. It's essentially a a motherhood penalty. The difference between women and non-parents is negligible. The real difference is between parents, mainly women, and their non-working counterparts. It's essentially a motherhood penalty. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, and I looked at a lot of the kind of stats for the book and how actually when you look to places like Canada, where they have really good childcare policies, not only is it good for the kids because they're in high quality childcare, but 
women are much more confident to go back to work. And then it more than pays for itself in the economy. So also as a society, we're making illogical economic decisions because of these prejudices about what should happen after having a kid. But actually, it would benefit the whole of society if we recognise that motherhood penalty and did things to change that. And there's loads of reasons why that doesn't happen. And, you know, governments are looking to the next election rather than long term. But actually, in the UK now, I think it's really clear the next election, childcare is going to be a huge issue because they're realising that actually it's a vote winner because so many people are so angry about this. And when you were researching the book, what were some of the other things that really, really stood out to you? And you just thought, I want to put this on a billboard and shout this from the rooftops. I think some of the most depressing research that I looked into was about gender stereotyping. And it really shocked me. And we all kind of know, and we talk about the kind of pink and blue stuff, but how actually parental inequalities, so the kind of idea that women always have to be primary responsibilities, is actually rooted in how we talk to girls and boys and how we show them you can be as an adult or what you should be as an adult according to your gender. You know, there are studies that show that parents underestimate their girls when they're crawling compared to boys, even though there's no difference in crawling ability. They just assume boys will be braver and boys will crawl better. It's nonsense. There are also really depressing studies that show how girls are much more likely to see men as more intelligent than women. And that changes when they're around kind of six or seven. And before that, they don't think that. And it's rooted in the toys that we tell girls are more suited to them and the slogans on their t-shirts and how nursery teachers speak to boys and just see them if they're being naughty as cheeky little monkeys. But it's not right for a girl to be like that. And girls should be caring and kind. And those kids grow up and their nursery teachers are predominantly women. And other people in caring professions are predominantly women. And that tells them that caring is for women. You know, we have this kind of inherent suspicion in society of men that do those kind of jobs. Men that are nursery teachers talk about the fact that parents don't want them changing nappies and things like that, because there's kind of this weird suspicion of them, even though they've had all the checks. And we have to celebrate men caring more. Partly, I wrote this book because I wanted to celebrate the fact that men can do this. When we had a kid, we did have some comments from kind of older generation relatives, kind of like, you need to get a woman involved. Just a disbelief that we could look after a baby. There's nothing scientific in it. It's totally societal. And I think as well as acknowledging that men can do this stuff, we should celebrate it. We should celebrate that men can care in the same way that we celebrate that women can work. And actually, when you look at kind of children's books, I find this really interesting. We've got to a good place in challenging gender stereotypes with girls. In children's books, girls climb trees and girls play football. But you still have all the books that are kind of about paper dolls or that kind of stuff is all about women and girls playing. It's never about boys playing in that kind of more creative way or caring way. And so I think that's the next step is not just celebrating girls who climb trees, but celebrating boys that dance or care for babies or whatever. You're absolutely right. And I wanted to ask you about guilt, because I think this feeds in directly to what you were just talking to. I know most of my guilt comes from when I step outside that very defined track, almost in my subconscious of who and what a mother should be. When I step outside that, I feel guilty. It's 99% unjustified guilt, unproductive guilt. And I'm wondering, did you experience the same thing? Did you experience that guilt or because you're freed of those expectations more did you not 
I definitely experience guilt, but when I look to my friends and read other things, I don't think it's to the same degree. I had to go away last weekend, actually, to visit my grandma. She lives abroad and she's very elderly. So I went away for three nights. It's the first time I've been in a different country to Solly. And I was kind of queuing for the airplane. And I suddenly had this kind of real pang, like, ah, I'm going to be in a different country to him. What am I doing? And then reassuring myself that, no, Robin's fine. And I'm allowed to have three days to see my elderly grandma. But I also acknowledge that women, I think, usually feel that more intensely. I think because we've been so determined to split the responsibility equally, not just the kind of physical roles and what we're doing, but also the kind of sense of responsibility equally, that that lessens the guilt. Also, I think writing the book has really helped. There's amazing scientific research that I think is so reassuring. If your kid's in childcare, if you split responsibility with a partner or even a grandparent, the studies show that when children have a few really good caring figures, they say the best number seems to be around three. So that could be a nanny, that could be a really good childcare, that could be a grandparent. If they have a few different attachment figures that genuinely care for them a lot and in a dedicated way, that's really good for them. Those kids tend to be more confident. They learn really important lessons about empathy. So if you have one parent who's really dedicated to you all the time, that's great. And you form a really good attachment. But what they say is that it's really important, even for babies, to somehow subconsciously pick up that mum changes my nappy and she does it really quickly and it's a bit cold. And dad changes my nappy and he blows my tummy and makes me laugh. And I'm already learning that different people do things differently. And then there's my grandpa who also looks after me and he does that funny thing with the buggy, but he also is a bit rough with me or whatever. They're learning about different people being different. And that's really good for being social people when we grow up. And it's apparently the basis for them kind of forming relationships and all things like that. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's completely unnatural how we raise children today. On our own, often, often the mother, you know, not knowing anyone down the street, maybe knowing one other mum friend, if you're lucky. It's completely unnatural for how we're wired, which is to evolve in community. Exactly. And actually, I found it really reassuring that your child having a few different caring figures, leaving them alone with someone else that you really trust. Not only should you not feel guilty because your time is also valuable and protecting your own mental health is really important and all those things, but actually your child will benefit from it. That's so powerful. Tell us about this word, allo mother. There's this anthropologist from America, very well respected, called Sarah Blafferhurdy, and she talks about allo mothers, and it's people other than mothers who do the job of traditionally what would be known as the job of a mother. And she's done loads of research where, you know, in the most primitive environments, women cannot have sole responsibility for children. In a kind of hunter-gatherer society, those children were much more likely to die. You're much more likely to survive when you look at all the data that's been gathered about these communities if you have an older sister around or a grandmother or someone else to help with the childcare. On a really basic level, you need those, what she calls allo mothers, the kind of other mothers, for the child to be more likely to survive. But also, these are the studies I was talking about previously, more recent studies, they've done loads in kibbutzim in Israel, where there's kind of a very well-established process of kind of kindergartens and children, while people are working the land or whatever, children also being brought up in a more communal setting and showing that those children that have strong relationships with their carers who are non-genetic carers are more likely to be confident and all those kind of things. So she believes absolutely in the importance of other carers 
to the development of children. And she said really interesting things to me as a gay dad. Through surrogacy, I'm not genetically related to my son. And she said all these things that totally made sense to me, but it was really nice hearing them from a, an eminent scientist. You know, she would describe me as an allo mother to my son. I'm kind of not a genetic mother to my son, but I'm doing the same stuff. And talks about how, because of all these studies into how brains change in men, she said she would describe me as a biological father. Because even though I'm not a genetic father, the idea that my body hasn't changed or haven't changed biologically because of being a father is nonsense. Like my brain will have changed in lots of different ways. Similarly, she describes mothers through adoption as biological mothers. They're not the genetic mothers of the baby, but their biology has literally changed by caring for this child. It's incredible. And she, as the grandmother, her biology changed when she went to visit her new grandchild as well, right? Her oxytocin levels increased. Yeah, she shared this little experiment she did after her grandson was born. You do it by spitting into a vial and then getting the samples tested. And she and her partner both did it after they met their grandson for the first time. And it totally backed up all the other science. Her oxytocin levels rose really high quite quickly as a woman after looking after the baby. Her husband, I think it's her husband, her male partner, whether her husband or not, did exactly the same thing. And his levels of oxytocin initially went up slower than hers, but then caught up when he was cuddling the baby after a few days. So exactly the same thing. It's all about interaction with your child. It's not about your sex. It's not even about genetics. It's about proximity to the child. I felt really emotional reading that bit in the book about you are absolutely a biological father and adoptive mothers are absolutely a biological mother. What an incredible thing. I've had such nice messages. There's one woman in particular who I've become friendly with through surrogacy and she couldn't carry her own child. And in the end, actually, she couldn't use her own eggs either. So she now has a child similar to me. She didn't carry and she's not genetically related to the child. And she just sent me a message. She said, I'm reading your book. I've just come to this bit. I didn't know I needed to hear it, but it's just so powerful and I'm so happy you wrote it. And it is amazing for parents through adoption to read that. And it's not kind of doing them a charity or, a, you know, this is science. This is what science is saying. And we feel it ourselves, but it's lovely to hear it reinforced in that way. I think also that's reassuring to mothers, to just any mother. Just because you're the mother and you've carried that child, that doesn't mean you have to feel guilt if you share childcare. Actually, that's really good for you and it's really good for your child. And you know what? It's really good for your partner because what's really hard as a primary parent, usually a mother, but also I felt this going first, is not being kind of over their shoulder and saying, you don't do it like that, you know, all those kinds of things. And actually, it is an example of where you give your partner space and they'll step up. Exactly. What powerful place to end. I always ask the same question at the end. Now, I normally ask if you could give one gift to all the mothers and I'm going to ask you that and then I'm going to ask the same question for fathers because I think that'd be interesting. So if you could give one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Do you know what? I um, immediately had an answer for the mothers and actually it's the same gift that would work for the dads as well. And that is a gift voucher for either one or two nights at just a really nice hotel with a really comfortable bed where they have to go by themselves because not only is that a gift to the mothers because it's totally fine to have a night away. And actually, it's nice to do it as a couple, but actually, it's quite nice to do it just by yourself as well. In my weekend, last weekend, to visit my grandma, actually, I feel totally refreshed. I was so patient with Solly yesterday at bedtime, and I haven't been in 
past few weeks. And I felt like just a couple of nights away and sleeping on my own, like I felt like such a better parent. And equally, it's a gift to dads if you do that, because it gives them the space to do things their own way. And I think you asked earlier about why men don't step up in these ways. And if you constantly feel like the other parent, it's kind of hard to gain confidence and feel good at it. But you need that space also to form your own bonds and to feel confident that you can do this stuff yourself by yourself as well. I think that's absolutely spot on. And I love that gift and the benefit on both sides of it because so many mothers want to do that, want to have a night away, but do have that feeling of guilt, of worry. So what a gift that actually you going away helps your co-parent, your partner, whatever your setup is, to step up. This has been incredible. I've absolutely loved it. Tell us a bit about where people can find the book and anything else that you want to let the listeners know about. So my book is The Equal Parent and you can find it by Googling. It's on Amazon or should be in most Waterstones and other bookshops. And yeah, just have a look online. I'm really keen to hear from people because it is one of those books where I've talked about our own experiences and I've explored the science, but I'm hearing from new people now after reading it. I had a message just now from a dad who had just got divorced and it was such an interesting other perspective and how he felt that previously he wasn't an equal parent, but actually after divorce, because those few days a week, you have them entirely under your responsibility. Suddenly you can't rely on someone else and you've got to step up. So I have a website as well. I really want to hear from people. I find it so interesting hearing other perspectives on this subject as well. You will definitely be hearing from other kind listeners. We are a very vocal lot. Where's your email? Is it on your website? Yes, you can send me a message through my website. There's a form. Brilliant. So I'm sure you'll get messages. And it just leaves me to say thank you for writing the book. Thank you for clearly doing probably years, I don't know how long it took you, of research. And it's just an incredible resource. And for me personally, I find so much of what you're talking about so freeing. I'm really excited to hear what everyone thinks of this. So thank you again. Thanks so much for having me on. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on.